Hi, I'm Sean. And I'm Thomas. And this is the Sean and Thomas Show. founder of the Chicago-based software development agency, DevScale, and welcome to the Sean and Thomas Show. This is episode number four of our new series called Founders Spotlight. Today's episode is a conversation we had with Alita Miranda Wolf, the founder of Ethos, which is a consulting company that helped growing and growth stage businesses build incredible and incredibly diverse company cultures to fuel their success. Alita shared some incredible insights, and we seriously learned so much from her on this call about time management, team management, and how to even read two books a week like she does. And it sounds like a joke, but she literally read 105 books last year, which is amazing. I think you're really going to like this one, so let's hop on in. Well, Alita, thanks for chatting with us today and being on the show. We're super pumped to talk about uh, Ethos and what you're up to. Thank you. I'm really excited to be part of your show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why don't you start out just by giving us a little background on what you do and what Ethos does and just kind of give us the lay of the land here. Yeah. So I run a company called Ethos. And what we do is we really focus on how we can create the conditions for everyone to thrive at work, specifically with this idea in mind that we can shape incredible company cultures that are also incredibly diverse. So we've been around for a year, and our focus has really been on how we can help specifically growing and grow stage technology companies achieve profitability, sustainability, and scale by investing in their people, specifically through cultural means. So that's what we do. I came to that path via a very circuitous route because I didn't start out in HR or people or even innovation consulting, which is something that we do Mm -hmm. a little bit of as well. I started out actually in manufacturing, and then I went from manufacturing to technology to venture capital. And I really built my career for three and a half years running the most active venture firm for early stage investments in the Midwest, and that was Hyde Park Angels. And when I was there, I was really a utility player. That's the way that I describe it. So my role was four roles. I was the director of platform. I managed all of our investors, all of our partners, so our Fortune 500s, our actual corporate sponsors, but also our investment partners, especially the Silicon Valley VCs who were using us almost as a Midwest office for investing here in the region. I managed everything to do with marketing and brand, which was sort of what I was originally hired to do. And then I managed our portfolio company growth. So I had all of these different roles that got mashed together, and then we called it platform. And when I was in this particular role, the way that I thought about it was in terms of strategy. So we had this vision for the organization when we started that we were going to become the most active investor in the Midwest, but that's not where we were. And so one of the first things that I did was I brought in a team of data scientists from Northwestern to develop a reputation score for us because I was a marketer. So I thought, okay, let's do some market research. And what they came back with was that we were squarely in the middle. And I had very few resources to do anything about it, Uh, but we had this vision and strategy was really in my wheelhouse. So I built the strategy all around people and taking a people first approach to investing. And that's really where my education in organizational development and organizational design started, even though if you would have asked me at the time, I would have called it strategy and operations. But it was the Mm -hmm. same thing to me, because ultimately what I ended up doing is completely reconstructing the entire organization from our investor base standpoint. So we had about 140 investors, and in my first two years there, I removed 60 of them. 
by <laughs> developing <laughs> a score to measure the amount of value that they added to our portfolio companies. Because the idea was for our organization, we were in the early stages, sub $100 million fund. We weren't going to achieve really successful outcomes through financial engineering like a mm -hmm. lot of other firms do. But we had this asset, which is we had started out as an angel group. And so we had all of these investors who could actually invest human capital into our companies. And so we said, well, what if taking a people first approach to investing just from a marketing standpoint means that mm -hmm. the investors who are in our organization have started, scaled and sold their own companies or headed up their own companies? And so we started focusing on how do we bring operators into our portfolio so that they can ultimately add the value. And they represented the entrepreneurs that our entrepreneurs wanted to be in 10 years. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of yeah. additive value there. So we had to really assess the investors in our base who were aligned to this mission, aligned to this new direction, could provide this value versus those who were not. I had the nickname Angel of Death for two years. <laughs> <laughs> I was either your favorite call or your least favorite call if you were one of my investors uh, because I also provided all of the benefits and team building and connections and resources and basically all of the touch points if you were an investor. But I was the person who wielded the score and told you that we wouldn't renew if you weren't matching up to our expectations. And then I replaced those investors with operators. Mm -hmm. And that is how I got mm -hmm. into learning and development because what happened was I brought in all these operators and they were high net worth individuals who had this operational expertise and no investing experience. Mm -hmm. So we had to develop a true yeah. onboarding program. We had to develop educational resources. Long story short, I developed 150 education programs in my time there for our investors, our portfolio company leaders who are mostly first time founders, and also the community at large because that was part of our bigger brand play. We wanted to genuinely support and champion entrepreneurs. What we were really doing differently is by saying we take a people first approach to investing, we were going to honor and support entrepreneurs, especially the ones that we could not invest in. So we were creating a lot of free resources and we were creating a lot of outreach opportunities for these entrepreneurs who were never going to get a check from us because at the end of the day, you can only write so many. And we were the most active that meant 25 deals a year, which is 15 more than everybody else. And if you think about the fact that we mm -hmm. looked at a thousand deals a year, still really low if you're an entrepreneur. So I ended up developing all of this learning and development programming and curriculum. And in the process, we just saw a ton of organizational transformation and change from our standpoint. And then because I was embedding in my portfolio companies, that was happening too. So in our actual mm -hmm. uh, organization, a few things happened. We did become the most active investor in the Midwest and we could quantify it. Awesome. Thank you. We could quantify it in terms of measurements we had been taking around this people first approach to investing. So we knew this people approach was working. And then on top of that, the whole time I had been working on diversity, equity, and inclusion, I was the only Hispanic person working in venture in Chicago, just one of 27 uh, Latina women in VC nationally. I was the youngest person in my role by 10 years, and I was the only woman so cool. in my firm. <laughs> so I did it because I wanted to take care of myself. I wanted to put myself in a good position. <laughs> and that meant that I got really invested and interested. And so when we did that big org transformation of our investors, we increased diversity by 25% in our investor base. And in our portfolio, we went from 3% female-founded companies to 20% female-founded companies. And that was a big part of that initiative too. But what was amazing is all of this stuff was working and making us a much more successful 
firm in terms of our returns and our sustainability and longevity over time. So it was clear this stuff was working. I was super into it, even though it was like maybe supposed to be 20% of my job. <laughs> I was doing it all the time. <laughs> and then our portfolio companies who are really used to me because I was doing their marketing and branding, I did all of the PR for our company. So there was a year where we had 730 pieces of earned media uh, for our companies. That was just me. Uh, (laughs) It's easier when you have 45 companies to talk about. Reporters pick up the phone, but still, uh, it was a lot. So they were really used to working with me uh, on strategic Mm -hmm. commitments and investing and developing their workforces. And so I just started doing people stuff with them. And that worked too. And a few of them kept saying, wow, I just couldn't find anybody else who could do this. Like we've looked in market, we haven't found anybody. Could you do this? What are you doing outside of EHPA? And it became clear to me that this was a business and also the thing that I was spending all my time on which is what led me to last April, finally step out of VC and go into founding ethos because I just felt like there was a need in market for it. But honestly, I live by my own purpose statement. I wrote my purpose statement out a year and a half ago, and it's really simple. I really believe that my purpose is to make the world more beautiful by helping people be kinder, smarter, and better at working on teams. And that's what I was looking to do. And this seemed like a way to do it. And I built all these models that worked and I had built all of these strategies and practices that worked. So why not do it for the companies that I was most interested in? So that was a really long-winded answer to your question, but there it is. (laughs) Well, well, there is a lot in there we need to unpack. You you had to have practiced Um, that. You didn't take, uh, yeah, yeah, that was amazing. Sean and I can't do that. <laughs> um, let's let's start with the what you you ended with there, which is your your purpose statement. What what is that, and why did you even have one? Yeah, that's a great question. I make people write them for themselves all the time after I did it. So there was a point when I was at work and I realized I was legitimately working 80 hours a week. I've always time tracked and uh, I was having fainting spells from exhaustion. My husband used to have to follow me into the bathroom when I took a shower because it was that level of exhaustion. And I started to feel so, so burned out. I created my own burnout plan that I presented to my team uh, to talk about how we could shift responsibilities. But what was happening is I was just at a low point in terms of my exhaustion. And I started to think my entire life is my work right now. My work does not have purpose that amounts to the sacrifices that I'm making. Does that mean my life doesn't Mm -hmm. have purpose? So I had a mini existential crisis. And I thought, well, how do I step back from this? How do I understand what I'm meant to do? Because for me, I'm not that interested in happiness. This is sometimes a controversial statement. I have a very (laughs) Epicurean view of happiness. For me, happiness just means the absence of pain. And it feels kind of thin to me. I'm much more interested in meaning making and fulfillment connection. I'm okay with feeling sad or angry or bad emotions if I can feel like what I'm doing matters, that people matter to me and that I matter to them. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to apply Simon Sinek's golden circle. Why, how, what to myself? And that's how I developed a purpose statement. So I said, what is my overarching why? What do I exist to do? What do I fundamentally believe? What are the special actionable characteristics that I want to put in place to actually achieve this why? And then what will I actually do? 
<laughs> in practice, you know, take this really broad, high level and go all the way down. And that's how I wrote out my purpose statement. And I made the decision that even though it was really broad and it didn't seem like a particular role in any company, that from now on, I was going to use that to determine any career decision that I made and also the decisions I made outside of my career. And it completely changed the direction of my career. I mean, absolutely mm. fundamentally. If I had not done that exercise, I'd be ahead of marketing right now still. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Did you write that down before you founded Ethos and while you were at HPA? I did. I did. I, I wrote it a year before I founded Ethos. And oh, wow. so cool. it was really percolating in my mind. And then it took shape. It was very much a work in progress for a long time. I really fleshed it out by meeting with mentors and advisors. It was just a period. I was so wrung out and so tired. And I had support from my team. But you just get to a point where you understand that there's not that much of a light at the end of the tunnel because at the point I was at in my firm, I was just maintaining and I'm not a maintainer. I like to build stuff. That's what I'm yeah. really interested in. And I'm also very impatient. So to have to do very patient, <laughs> measured maintenance work and to do it well because I'm an insane perfectionist, it just didn't feel like that was going to be sustainable for me over time. And so one of the things that I did, it was one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was from Amanda Lannert, who I talk about on every podcast and every interview ever because I love her and she's so important to me. But she said to me, Alita, just think of the leader that you want to be. What kind of leader do you want to be? Come up with three words and then make a list of all of the leaders that you think embody that across industries, across roles. Put it in an Excel sheet and meet with one of them every single day, every single day that you're still figuring out your purpose. And every yeah. single conversation will help you get closer. Uh, and she didn't really frame it in terms of purpose. It was more in terms of discovery or exploration. But I put the two things together. And that's how I decided to found Ethos, because one of those meetings with my other mentor, Viva, who runs people, I was meeting with her thinking I was going to go on this marketing path. And it was just about finding the right company culture and the right team. And she was the first person who said to me, you know, what it sounds like you do is like what I do. And we could use a lot of what you do on my people team. Have you ever thought about mm -hmm. that? And like six weeks later, it just hit me in the middle of the night that that was what I should be doing. And so mm -hmm. I would not have even considered it, but I looked back at my purpose statement and I was like, oh my God, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. What were those three um, values that you mentioned that you like want to be or want to see in leaders? Kind, thoughtful, and humble. Cool. And who is that first leader you mentioned? I didn't catch her name. Amanda Lannert. She's the CEO of Jelly Vision. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I knew I recognized that name. <laughs> <laughs> she's a Chicago tech celebrity. She's everywhere all yep. the time. But she is everywhere yep. all the time for me and support of me. She's an amazing person. That's yeah, super that's cool. awesome. Unpacking what we talked about before. Um, one, um, tell us what it was like to... Uh, just like fire investors. Cause I think that's such an interesting concept of like you being a, a group and then just like getting rid of investors where typically it's like someone getting rid of customers and you hear that time to time, but you almost got rid of like half of your customers, you know, which is kind of like what, so tell us about that process and how much um, chaos that caused. 
We built a structured <laughs> process and we were really thoughtful and intentional about it. I give so much credit to our managing director for thinking through change management in a very real operational way. One of the first things we did was build a membership committee where investors formed a body to help define the criteria. And then we spent a huge amount of time communicating that we had really new criteria for what it meant to be a good investor in the organization. We developed the score. We shared the score with everyone all the time, every single investor meeting, every annual meeting. We sent it over emails. I put it in internal communication newsletters. And then what we did is we created our list of our initials. And our initials were folks who were scoring really, really, really low. So we gradually worked over time to get to sort of the middling, like the C (laughs) group, but we were starting with the F group, basically. Mm -hmm. And so we developed a year-long process where they would have quarterly touch points with other investors, as well as myself, to figure out how they could improve their performance. So I learned how to do a performance plan, and I didn't even know that that's what I was learning how to do. And then I talked to people in HR, and they were like, this is a performance plan. Uh, So we would put (laughs) together what they would need to do in order to be more engaged in the organization and contribute more value. And then at the end of the year, if their score had changed, if they had shown significant improvement, they could remain in the organization. If not, we would non-renew was the term, because originally it was off-board. Like, I spent a lot of time on the language. And, I mean, I can tell you it was really hard. Some people took it gracefully, but in the beginning, not many people took it gracefully. Yeah. By year two, people were very much aligned to what we were saying, which was, it's not that you aren't good enough to be an investor here. It's that what we believe in, what we stand for, and that what we're asking from you isn't a match. And so it really became a match conversation, and that made it a lot easier. But in the beginning, it was just a lot of emotional work that had to be done. And I did have support from that membership committee, which I will never, ever forget because I don't think that we could have had the same outcomes without having other investors along the Mm -hmm. way doing those quarterly check-ins and thinking through Mm -hmm. those communications with me and and managing that process. But we did build a robust process to make this happen. And then the whole time that we were doing it, we were recruiting, essentially, even though that's not what we called it. We were finding replacements who were much more aligned to, and this is crazy, but I built an ideal customer profile for (laughs) my investors. And that's why every time I go into companies, even though I'm not doing anything related to sales or business development, I always make them build ICPs if they don't have them, because it just creates a lot of structure around what is often a very nebulous and difficult to define person Mm -hmm. that you're in a relationship with, whether it is a customer or an employee or a key stakeholder or an investor. I think it was so interesting, too, how you mentioned that a majority of the new investors that you brought on board, your ideal customer profile, were investors that um, were brand new to the game and never did it. And I thought that was really interesting because that kind of um, resonates with that kind of statement of, you know, like hire for fit, train for skill um, sort of thing because you're like values are in the right place. I thought that was really interesting too. Yeah, I always say hire for addition, not fit. Uh, So I do run a diversity, equity, and inclusion practice. And I will say Mm -hmm. I am not trying to quibble. But the one issue with culture fit is that it's really, really abstract in people's minds. So what happens is they think about who's going to fit in here as opposed to who is Mm -hmm. going to fundamentally add culturally to our values. 
So you mm-hmm. may bring somebody in who is an introvert and the whole team is made up of extroverts. And in a culture fit scenario, you would say, okay, well, they're not really a fit. But in a cultural addition scenario, mm-hmm. you would look at their values and see, okay, they really show integrity in every decision that they make. They are willing to raise their hand when problems arise. They show care and compassion in their relationships with team members. Maybe they're introverted, but they would really bring something of value to the table when it comes to our values. And so I always try to think about it from that perspective because, I mean, I've been there before in terms of hiring. I mean, I have been in this place of how well are we going to vibe together? And those not always work out to be my best employees because I'm measuring based on whether we can be friends and not whether they can really fundamentally shape my organization. So I've had to be way more expansive, but I will say a lot of that came from just in the beginning when we were finding these folks for HPA, we didn't want a culture fit because we were trying to change our culture completely. So I had to think about it differently. I had to think about what it was that we were missing or would need to add in or would essentially be essential for momentum in the organization. And so I think that I had to develop a much more flexible and adaptable perspective from that standpoint, just because of what we were trying to do. Yeah. yeah so when you had the idea for ethos and, and decided to actually pursue this as a business, what was your first step? So my first step was to build a strategic plan through years of financial projections, an org chart, an advisory board, a lead list, a CRM, and an entire brand. Uh, And that was the span of two weeks while I was still at my other job. But I did all of the things that we always asked our companies to do that they never did. Uh, So So you already had this kind of playbook because you've been doing this for three years with your with your team. Exactly. I put okay. everything together. Uh, and that's why the, the day that Ethos launched, we launched, you know, my first day working on my own business, we launched our website, our press campaign. I had 137 sales meetings scheduled for that month. <laughs> and I started going to all of them. I had eight that's meetings on my first day. Unreal. So You're putting I, Thomas to shame here. He's our biz <laughs> dev guy. He, he, he's like, oh man, I haven't had 337. I, I don't know how you do that. I like have like eight to 10 meetings and and if I have eight or 10 meetings in a day, then I'm like wiped. I can't like- Me too. It's, it's not it's, like it was fun. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's more like I was stressed and thought my business was definitely going to fail. <laughs> yep. Wow. So how did you get 137 meetings landed? Like that that's like so crazy. Like in the first in the first month. month. Yeah. Because thinking month. if yeah. you talk to anybody who's starting their own company, that's definitely it's almost always not their first step is to have everything uh, launched. It sounds like it's a recipe for success <laughs> yeah. too. Is one thirty seven. Uh, so it was uh probably too many meetings, but What I did was when I was rolling off of HPA into Ethos, I built a whole communication plan for the transition. And so I made an announcement across all my social channels. I had a pretty big medium following. I still have a medium following that's significant, at least in this community. So I published Mm -hmm. those announcements and I personally emailed 250 people who were uh, just contacts from all the work I had done in investing. One thing that I'll say is, It sounds like a lot of meetings, but I came from a job where it was literally my job to know people and the people I was supposed to know were my ideal customers. So if I was trying to talk to Fortune 500 leaders, I wouldn't have been able to do that. 
But I mean, yeah, I was actually at HPA for four and a half years, not three and a half years. I was there for three and a half years as a director of platform. My first year, I was an associate. So I was actually working on consumer products and services. I just knew a ton of mm-hmm. entrepreneurs. And I also had built my career on the idea that you do favors for people and you help people because being helpful is the biggest virtue that there is. I fundamentally live to help other people. So I was, by the way, always overcommitted and overextended in my job, but I did a lot for a lot of people. And then it turned out that they remembered. And it was sort of this shocking thing where I would say, you know, I'd love to have a meeting with you. And they would say, not only can we have a meeting together, but can I introduce you to three other people? And then whenever I had my sales meetings too, I always asked the question, who should I be talking to? I would tell them who my ideal customer was, and I was really specific in it in a weird way. So I talk about market segments and company sizes and all of the stuff that you're supposed to talk about. But actually, I don't really care that much what I care about. (laughs) It's much harder to pinpoint with numbers, but I can feel it, uh, which is a way of saying gut, which I hate because I love to be data-driven. But my Mm -hmm. best customers are entrepreneurs who are what I call enlightened leaders. So it either means that they have attributed the success or failure of a past company that they ran to the people in that organization and how they were treated, or they're a first-time entrepreneur who has an emotional attachment to their employee base. And then I also had this philosophy that I would not take on work where the problem was more interesting to me than the person asking me to solve it. Because then I was always going to be a vendor. And that, I hate that word. I just, I hate that word. Yeah. I hate the word vendor. It makes me feel like I'm selling fruit <laughs> on the side of the road. And yeah. I can't really build a partnership or a connection with somebody. And so it literally hurts me when I hear it. And sometimes my clients do call me a vendor and I have to get over it. But I try mostly to look for folks who wouldn't see me that way. And then yeah. the last component of it was, are they truly experiencing growth in their companies? Because that is what I am good at. I hate doing layoffs. I hate it. I hate doing employee removals. I hate doing that technical HR work. And so I don't want to do it and I don't do it. But that means that I have to look for companies that are going through an inflection point because the thing that happens in startups is that when you're zero to 30 employees, I guess one to 30 employees, you're a family. You act like a family from an organizational model standpoint. But then... 30 to 150, you become a community, which fundamentally acts in a different way. And then 150 and beyond is an organization. So it's this sort of federation of different communities. And it creates a lot of opportunity in organizations, but a ton of stuff breaks during those transition points. That's what I know how to fix and what I get really excited about fixing. So I would be in these sales meetings and I would say that. I would say those three things are what I was looking for. And I would say, who should I be talking to? And that meant that the folks that got suggested as warm referrals were the folks that I should be talking to and therefore much more likely to take the meeting because Mm -hmm. they cared about the same things that I cared about. But there was definitely an element of goodwill. My advisors were hugely supportive. My, you know, Hyde Park Angels was super supportive and I had been really public for a long time. So this is a point in my career where I had been doing four speaking events a month. You know, I had partnerships with a lot of Mm -hmm. other organizations. So people knew my name if they saw it in their inbox. Uh, It doesn't mean I've never been turned down for a meeting. It just meant that in the beginning, I lined it all up and scheduled it. All those meetings were scheduled a month before. (laughs) So that was a big part of the planning process. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's a very standard advice for like SaaS companies or tech companies 
is if you have an audience first, it's a lot easier to sell whatever it is you're making, right? <laughs> right. Which, which is like the hardest thing to do because you have to spend four years building up your audience, whether that's speaking engagements, medium articles, whatever. And then once you launch something, all this, you have people to talk to. <laughs> right. Uh, it's, co- it's cool to see that work in a service business as well because it's, it's not the typical use case of, of having that audience to sell to. And I will say I give a lot of credit to Jessica Zweig and Simply Be Agency. They were uh, one of our partners at HPA, but Jessica is just personally one of my dearest friends and became my first client. But she runs a nice. personal branding agency. And awesome. when I was still figuring out my purpose and what I wanted to do, she said the best thing you can do for yourself right now is invest in your personal brand. She was the person who said you need to start putting your writing up on Medium because I wrote all the time. And I was a professional yeah. writer and I had a content consultancy very early on in my career. But I just wasn't writing for myself. I wasn't writing about what I was interested in. And she said, do it and actually build out your Twitter profile and spend some time on LinkedIn growth hacking and put together better photos, like do this work, it will pay off. And she helped me think through that strategy. (laughs) And I do think it made a lot of difference for me in launching my business because I went into Mm -hmm. a lot of cold meetings where people knew who I was already. And there's basically nothing more beneficial when you have to go into a meeting with people you don't already know (laughs) than them having heard of you in a positive way before. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually so Mm -hmm. much work too, because Thomas and I are just starting to do this. And that's probably like our biggest regret is that we haven't been, we haven't been branding ourselves personally for four years, right? There's absolutely no reason that we shouldn't have been doing that. Um, And now that we're actually starting to do that with this podcast and a lot of other things, it's a lot of work. Like it's pretty much my full-time job now to do that while Thomas is being the operator in the biz, uh, biz dev. Um, so that's that's amazing you were able to do that. That's pretty cool. And Alita, we don't know how you do it because you you do like both of the roles as one person. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. It means we should all be working harder. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't, uh, again, I wouldn't advocate for that as someone who is working with a client until four in the morning. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And and speaking of like working really hard and like overworking, um, I, I feel like the three of us have been to a point where we're just like, boom, like we're done, kind of burnt out. Um, I've never been at the point of like fainting. Uh, I don't think, I don't think Sean has either, but talk to us. You mentioned that burnout plan. Um, it's the first time I've ever heard of something. Uh, what is it and why did it come about? I'm sure, you know, independent invention, other people have made it up before, but basically I was a branding and marketing person and I wanted to put words to paper about what was happening to me. So I put together a structured plan around essentially the situation. So this is what my burnout looks like. These are the consequences of my burnout for the business this is what I think I should do about it. And this is what I can personally take responsibility for. This is where I need team support. And this is what we as an organization need to think about. And then I put a timeline and milestones together. And I sat down with my managing director and I showed it to him. And to his credit, he said, Alita, you didn't put enough on here to give up. You would have to give up just one of your verticals that you're owning for this to truly actually make a difference. But that's what I put together. Mm-hmm. I basically just put together a proposal for doing less work because <laughs> uh, I was doing a lot of, I guess, self-care. And that's sort of a complicated word for me because it, it is a little bit of maintenance as opposed to true self-care. But, you know, I meditate every single day. I work out five times a week. I practice guitar twice a day. 
I, at this point in time, was doing a lot of volunteering and teaching, which was restorative for me. I had my outlet in my art studio. I had two art shows that year, but I was mostly in my art studio as a form of stress management and stress relief. Mm -hmm. I have done every breathing Mm -hmm. technique that you can imagine. I have built rituals and rules (laughs) into my life to make sure that I rest. So I'm never more restful or relaxed than when I'm reading. And I am an overcommitter, but I love to follow my own rules. So I made it a rule that I have to read two mm-hmm. books a week. And so I have for the last two three books years. a week. Mm-hmm. My God. <laughs> but it means that I rest. It means yeah. that I rest. It means that I stay in bed or I lay on my couch or instead of taking that extra meeting, there will be a Wednesday where I come home in between meetings and I will read an entire book. Because I'm yeah. like, I, I said I was going to get to two. And if I don't do it today, it's not going to happen. What happens is I physically rest. And a big part of my brain that's always overactive turns off. So I have engaged in a lot of those practices over time. But I will say, like, fundamentally, I'm a responsibility taker, and I take on everybody's stuff all the time. And until I really learn how to let that go and not be as attached to that, I think I'm always kind of teetering on the brink of putting myself in a position of burnout. I'm a little bit there right now, but Mm -hmm. I'm hiring. And so hopefully that will help me because a big part of it, I realized was not my fault. It was my fault last year, like 100%. All of my burnout was my fault, especially November and December, 100% my fault. (laughs) January, February, it was more like my business grew 400% and I added no resources. So I was like, all right, let's add some resources. (laughs) That was a a pretty big smile you gave us there when you said you're hiring. I am. I'm really excited about it. Who, uh, what's the role you're hiring for? I'm hiring an associate role, which is a true generalist role for my organization. So someone to actually come in and be a perfect complement to me because I'm the only practitioner in my firm. So I have two folks on my team, but I spend all of my time on site with clients. Mondays and Thursdays, I am just with clients uh, on site. And then the days in between two, I have eight clients that are active at the same time this week. I have 24 clients total and I'm doing all of this work for them. And that means like my CRM needs more work, you know, my prospects pipeline needs more work. I need to really build out much better project management practices in my project management tool. I need to build an account management department. Mm -hmm. I need to do all of this systems design that I'm not going to do because I have client work. And so having somebody who is genuinely energized by systems work is so important to me because it's not energizing to me. I can do it, but I don't like it. And it's very depleting. I can read a book in two hours, but if you have me sit in front of my CRM and clean it out, I will want to throw myself off of a building. So I need somebody who is the opposite of that. And then uh, this person would also work on some client facing, especially for our biggest client who is essentially launching an entire company that will be filled with other companies And I can only be there on Thursdays and I should be doing what I do best, which is strategy and not execution. And this is a person who can do a little bit of both and therefore learn that trade. And then finally, I'm looking for someone to take what I do, which is so bespoke and so consultative and turn it into a real system that's replicable that we can teach to other people so that we can go into more companies. I always use the word scale differently than other people, uh, which is weird because if anybody should use it appropriately, it's me. But uh, (laughs) when I talk about scale, I'm not interested in an acquisition or an IPO. I'm just interested in the fact that I have a wait list of 10 companies that I can't serve because I don't have enough people Mm -hmm. uh, in my company. Mm -hmm. And I really believe in making these environments 
safer, where people can be more vulnerable, where they can have purpose at work, where they really can thrive. And in order to actually do that, I need to figure out how to depersonalize. I need to figure out how to not just make it me. And so I'm really excited about this person collaborating with me as a thought partner on figuring out how to do that. So that's what I'm hiring for. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's really cool. It's uh, it's an amazing thing when you have people doing things that you don't enjoy doing and they <laughs> enjoy doing it. <laughs> Thomas just hired a, a, per, a virtual assistant and uh, I can already tell he's happier. Yeah. <laughs> I've thought about it. What would you say is the biggest advantage of a virtual assistant? Um, there's a lot of time and... Uh, I mean, I hope everything works out, but there's like, because I'm very particular about like many things, you know, like calendar invites. I really hate when people send me like, here's a link, book my calendar. I feel like that's so not personal. And like Sean and I are very personal people. Um, There's like a, there's like a, like human touch that needs to be done for like a lot of things. And being people that build software and love automating things, there's also things that we like respect and keep holy as like, you know, this is like, you want to enjoy it. And so I don't know, we'll see, we'll see what happens, but being able to like free up even like an hour of my day of just like setting up meetings or leads. Cause I don't know, I want to get to the 137 mark uh, in a <laughs> month. And I, I feel like I'll spend all my time just like booking meetings instead of actually like doing the strategy, the execution piece, kind of like what you're saying. And, and recently I've been I've been too busy to, to actually like create all this content and, and I hired a um, podcast editor. And so we just started that too. So that'll be interesting to see if that takes up, uh, gives me some more thinking time, which will be nice. <laughs> Isn't that weird that the more leadership you get in a company, the more you become a leader, the more that your work needs to not look like work to other people. <laughs> you just need more thinking yep. time. You need more alone yeah. time to ruminate on things. Yeah, you just need a day to just wander and just like, yeah, it's, yeah, you're totally right. <laughs> Especially could be like going from developer, we talk about this a lot, going from developer to manager, developer to leader or something, whereas a developer, you're, you're coding, you commit, and you can see what you did. Like there is a, there's a clear trail of every task that you worked on. But then mm-hmm. once you become a leader, you can't point to anything. You're, you're just like, what did I do for this whole day? <laughs> it's so hard. And then you make yourself a task list and you try to take all of the ideas you're generating and put them into plans and deliverables. And that takes a lot of time. And you think to yourself, was this worthwhile? Or should I have been using yeah. <laughs> this to not work on my task list and do more research or yeah. do more thinking or somehow innovate by going on a very long walk? Yeah, exactly. And sometimes that's what it takes. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Before you were talking about your ideal customer profile, is that the term you used? Yes. Uh, can you talk to us about how you go from zero to where you're at today with your your profile? To, for to your 24 customer? and 10 waiting customers. Yes. I don't feel good about the 10 waiting customers, just so that you know. I don't feel good about that. That's a point of shame a, and strife for me. It's a it's a very bad, really good problem. <laughs> it's still a problem, though. I'm struggling yep. with this good problem thing because mm-hmm. I do recognize that I should be grateful for my problem, but that feels really oxymoronic problems are still to problems. me. Right. There's still problems. Mm-hmm. So I... Um, so I built my ideal customer profile, and I'm happy to share a resource that will tell you step-by-step step how to do it. It was something yeah. that I wrote um, a while back, but cool. I put yeah. together this ideal customer profile, which is everything about 
who this person is in the market, what the market looks like, what their pain point is, where I can find them, and then created a target list and then did my outreach based on those targets. I run my business really differently than a lot of other practitioners in my space. A lot of consultants, it's just mostly referral-based. And my business is becoming more referral-based just because I have so many clients to serve that I can't be as outbound as I wanted. But when I started out the company, I really built it like a SaaS company because that's the only thing I knew how to do. I had never really seen a services business other than the firm I worked in. And VC is weird as a services business. It's not quite a services business, right? And so I had all of these product roadmaps for my SaaS companies. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to build a product roadmap for my company and I'm going to sell based on these stages and based on what I know to be my ideal customer by segment and Mm -hmm. by these different stages of my offerings. And so I created a target list and I mapped it all out and I put it in my CRM and I put my opportunities pipeline together. And after I did all of those things, I was just really very focused on the personal touches actually. So as much as I use technical framework, I mean, I make my own wrapping paper and I give people gifts. I give every single client that I work with a gift. It is a book that I have read that I think will help them with a problem and I will itemize the pages that they should read if they don't want to read the whole book. Uh, so, And I'll wrap it in wrapping paper that I made. This is Ethos, but from Alita because I like the personal touch. I make yep. sure that I write a thank you note for every meeting that I have. And I have my own stationery and I love writing thank you notes. And so all of that stuff gets put into my CRM too, to make sure I'm tracking and I don't leave people out. But I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is I built a lot of those relationships by just caring about the people a lot. I always say that's kind of like my biggest strength and my biggest weakness. Everything really matters to me a lot all the time. Like I'm not a, I don't care about this, whatever person about anything ever, Um, which is really exhausting. (laughs) I'm just going to put that out there. It's really tiring. But at the same time, when it comes to prospects and then existing customers or clients for, you know, what I call them, I think that that's actually more important for me in my business where it is today than a lot of the system that I've built out, which I have built out. And I, you know, happy to talk about my tech stack. I live and die by copper. I think it's the best sales CRM period ever. And I switched recently from using Asana to more of a consultative platform. So I use teamwork now just because it's more collaborative with my clients. I focus a lot on what my integrations look like. And I focus a lot on how I can see the journey, my customer journey. And Mm -hmm. I'm just becoming more interested in my customer experience journey. So not the timeline from becoming a prospect to a customer, but once you become a customer, what is your experience with me and the organization? Mm -hmm. I just couldn't do that before because my business is turning a year old on April 15th, so I just didn't have enough data. What a famous day. (laughs) Tax day. I know, I know. Of course I would launch my company on tax day. That's fun. Um, I liked what you said, how you said everything really matters to you a lot. Um, I think that's cool. And you said you briefly mentioned before that you were like a perfectionist and I think that like the two go hand in hand um you had and I'm just quoting things that you mentioned but I I promise I'm going somewhere so you um you said that a lot more of your business right now is more referral based right because you have that base coming out um how did you like what portion of your business is referral based right now and what was happening before um and how are you going about new business? Yeah, 
So, I mean, in the beginning, almost all of it was my network or uh, cold. So I had a lot of content out and people found it. I will say for me in the beginning, speaking engagements were the number one. I made $100,000 on one speaking engagement, a free speaking engagement that I didn't want to attend, but did anyway because I was supposed to be on vacation. Wow. And I was like, okay, maybe this is going to be valuable. And then oh, there wow. are three clients that are in my portfolio today that were just all at that event and really agreed with what I said. <laughs> so there was a lot of just being out in the community. My first six months at Ethos, I mean, it was more than four speaking events a month. It, it could be four a week. It was all over the wow. place. I was everywhere talking all the time, which was really important for me because uh, about 60% mm -hmm. of my business last year, not as much now, but about 60% of my business last year was learning and development. And it was training. So it was really important for me to be out and speaking in front of people because it's what they were buying. So they would get an opportunity to see it, even if it wasn't the custom content that they would want for their company. So that was a huge part of it. And my content marketing engine was a huge part of it, especially LinkedIn. I've been a LinkedIn growth hacker for about two years. I focus on writing really personal content that's all professionally related. And then I have all kinds of tools that I use to make sure that I have the reach that I want. But then I also engaged in a lot of just putting together target lists and understanding what was happening in the community. So if I do look at those triggers for me, I travel. So I, I do consult nationwide, but I don't like to have too many clients outside of Chicago. It's not in my home base mm -hmm. just because the travel schedule becomes really just insurmountable. Difficult. I was on four planes yeah. in three days in October and I was like, I am not doing this again. So uh, I would put together sort of my, my 150 targets, so to speak, of the tech companies that were, and my ideal target was 50 to 200 uh, employees at this time. Uh, I do smaller, I do bigger, but that's really yeah. who I was looking at. So 50 to 200 employees, usually venture backed, especially recently venture backed, because that is an indicator that they're going to grow really quickly soon. And you can find that data pretty easily from SEC filings, from Angelus, from Crunchbase, from Built in Chicago. So that's pretty available. And I can know that there's going to be an inflection point happening in terms of hiring, which is when a lot of this culture work starts to get done. Mm -hmm. So I would put that into my target list and then I would always look, is it somebody that I am connected to through a warm connection? Is it cold? Where are they in terms of my network? Where could I meet them? Where could I find them? Et cetera. So that was my sort of outbound process. And then I would do a lot of outreach and schedule those meetings. And then in the meetings themselves, I mean, I have productized offerings because I built a product roadmap for my business. I almost never talk about them. I always bring my sell sheet, which is my one pager just so we have some structure to the meeting. And I always follow my same meeting ritual. So I uh, love the PBC, purpose benefit check. What is the purpose of the meeting? What is a mutual benefit to both parties? And is there anything else that they would like to add a check on what they would like to contribute? And then I come up with five to seven impact questions. So um, I call them impact questions. So does Craig Wartman, who I got it from. He runs the Sales Institute at Kellogg. He used to be the entrepreneurial selling guru at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And he talks cool. about impact questions as these questions that really get people to stop and pause and reflect. Your whole meeting shouldn't be impact questions because then it's sort of just like this exhausting experience for everybody. But to have some prepared, yeah. <laughs> uh, I found it was actually huge for me. I don't write them down as formally anymore for my initial sales meetings. But in the beginning, what it did was it focused my attention on getting to know the problem as opposed to selling what it was I had to sell. And that was a really important 
learning for me because I hate sales. So <laughs> I hate sales. I never wanted to be a salesperson. I went to marketing because it seemed like the exact opposite of sales to get to the same outcome. And so yeah. I just didn't like it. And taking this approach meant that I could sit down with people and say, I have a curiosity mindset. I'm going to know you. That's why I'm here. I want to know you. I want to know what you're facing. So basically every sales meeting came to being, this is a particular problem and I'm probably dealing with it right now. Can you fix it in this meeting? So we kind of start doing the work together. And then from there, we would continue the conversation and I would sort of follow my process. Now, basically, I, I said I'm not doing as much outbound sales just because I actually decided to do no sales March. It's all over my calendar. I can't take any sales meetings this month because I was hiring. And so I wanted to take all the time that I would normally spend on sales on hiring. I'm a small team. I only have two people on my team. They're both operations. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's there's not that much time in a week. And I made that call. And what I found is, uh, you know, my companies have been great referrers. I haven't even had to ask for it. And when I have asked, you know, they've been ready and willing to do it, but they, they, you know, have been happy with what I've done. And I think that's the place where being a perfectionist and having this obsession with delivering excellence and quality all the time and going above and beyond and working extra hard, harder than I need to work, honestly, with some of my clients, has put me in a good position from a real for all standpoint. I want to go back to outbound. I just want to have the resources to do outbound. If you have a wait list of clients doing outbound yep. sucks because <laughs> you're devaluing the people who are waiting for you. Yep. So I just need yeah, more resources. In, <laughs> inbound is, is a lot, a lot easier of a sell too. It's if, if you have people that want to work with you, that that is just so much easier than trying to convince people to work with you. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of the the equation that Thomas and I are trying to crack right now is is how do we get our existing clients to become better referrers um, on top of already producing like excellent work for them, right? So it's trying to empower them to do that. That piece and the whole outbound piece too. I think yeah. what we struggle with a lot, and I bet a lot of companies struggle with a lot and, and why Sean asked the question about your ideal customer profile is that defining that um, and actually getting it right is such a tricky thing. Sean and I have been working together for almost eight years now and um, I think we have like a gut feeling for what that is, but it's hard for us to like articulate it. And Alita, when you talk about being a very data-driven person, um, I think Sean and I are both data-driven, maybe me like slightly more because I like numbers, but I don't know what the data looks like. It's a bunch of, it's a jumbled, you know, list of letters and numbers. And I feel like a lot of people struggle with that. What suggestions or questions do you have for people that are in that place? Of trying to figure out their ideal customer profile. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to, I'm going to pull up my own Google Doc. <laughs> and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go through the questions that I would ask myself in this situation. So I think that might be the best approach. So the first thing that I think about is really, really simple. And it comes down to sort of traits or categories, right? So I think that the easiest place to start is industry, right? What industry am I interested in? So if I were to break it down into uh, four dimensions, I would look at demographics, technographics, sales triggers, and then basically X factors, which is something that I put in for myself. And what I described earlier, those were my X factors, right? That enlightened leader idea 
isn't going to fit into demographics or technographics mm-hmm. or sales triggers. But if I look at demographics, the questions I'm going to ask are what industries am I interested in and why? And I'm going to try to limit it to one. I may have to make multiple ICPs. That's the truth because I may want to serve multiple verticals, but I want a really good picture of who an ideal customer looks like so that I can go out and have other people help me find them. Not just so that I'm doing research online and, you know, putting together these lists, but I can go to my customers today and say, this is really what I'm looking for. Who do you know? Uh, And there are tactful ways to do that that I can share. But I would start in this demographics category by what is the industry I want to serve? What is my ideal team size? What is my ideal geography? What is Mm -hmm. the ultimate benefit that this customer would be looking for from my company. And then I would look at technographics. So what do they need to have technologically in place? That's really what I'm looking for there. There are other questions that you can ask, but because I work with tech companies, you know, I'm interested in companies that have a working product and initial customers and users, right? Because they have to be able to afford me and they also have to be in a place as a company where they have employees who are actually working on things. And for me, I am thinking about it in terms of back to that ideal customer profile. Like I'll look at that team size, but I'll also look at where they are in their funding stage. That's unique to me. But Series B companies Mm -hmm. are pretty much ideal all the time just because of where they are in their growth inflection point. Series A works, and I've definitely worked with bootstrap companies and pre-seed companies, but if I'm building my ICP, I'm really thinking what is the ideal, ideal, ideal customer. So I'll look at that Series Mm -hmm. B for me, and then I'll look at sales triggers. So what would lead them to convert? I'll think about what would make them ideal for me. So it might be that they just hired a number of roles or this might be the place where I put in funding. It may go into sales triggers. It may go into demographics, depending on who I'm going after. It's going to be looking for inflection points in the sales triggers that are basically just making them say, we need some help today. Um, I do look at other things. Like I'll look at um, LTV, for example. I'll look at current customers today to look for profiles. So I'll look at my turn customers. Um, I didn't have any for a really long time, so it was hard to do that. But for my current customers, I looked at what made them an ideal customer, why I would want to keep working with them again. But for my turn customers, I would ask very specific questions. So why were they a bad match for my services? Why did the value proposition not align with their needs of my business? Why did that not align? How were they acquired as a customer? Maybe it wasn't the right acquisition channel. How much support did they require during their time as a customer? What was the deciding factor as to why they opted not to move forward with services? You know, this is a turned example. I mean, and I have also looked at a longer list of sales triggers uh, before. So I've looked at company expansion. I looked at company relocation. I've looked at new product and service announcements. I've looked at restructurings. That's a really big one for me. I've looked at job postings and hiring. I've looked at mergers and acquisitions. I've looked at IPOs, additional funding, press coverage. I've looked at what their financial quarters look like, if that's public information or their public company. And I've also just looked at, do they have an increase in costs uh, or expenses? So I've looked at a lot of different pieces when I've looked at this. I definitely have eliminated some. I used to look at TAM. I used to look at total addressable market. It's really hard to do a sizing when you have data on a company. It was really easy to do it when I was in VC because I got other pitch, mm-hmm. pitch decks, right? But that's not where I am today. 
Um, and then, you know, for mm -hmm. me, what makes an account sort of the best customer is, you know, high lifetime value LTV, because I want to build relationships really important to me. I don't want to be a vendor. I don't want to be in a project standpoint, making sure that there's a clear value proposition for them in terms of culture. I actually create a one page strategy plan for every business I work with, even if they already have their own plans that they're presenting to their boards, where it's an abbreviated version so that I can take it, look at the strategy plan for their business and say, how does working on this diversity, equity and inclusion problem or this culture problem actually solve the business need, the greater business need? How does it contribute to the health of the business? Any kind of chance for uh, expansion over time with the client is something that I really look for. Any kind of sort of brand advocacy uh, or referral providing, that's all stuff that I look for too. So I feel like that was maybe a barrage of information, but uh, I look at a lot of factors is I guess my answer to your question. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, I, I think Thomas asked that question because we are not this structured at all with with our ideal customer. And it's, and it's always been a struggle with us is trying to identify who our ideal customer is and who we actually want to serve. Um, so that's, that's a constant, constant struggle for us that we know we need to figure out. So we're learning a ton from you today. <laughs> I made three, just so you know, I made three okay. different ones. And uh, I'm at the place now where I will throw them out the window and like totally fall in love with the client. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that happens. That happens. I remember there was one person in January where I was meeting with them as a favorite because they were a referral from an existing client. And I was going to tell them, look, I really just don't have capacity to take you on. And she and I clicked within five minutes and we're going to my meditation center together at the end of the week and had like a drink date and we're going to like start a mastermind group. And so she totally became a client immediately. So cool. Like I could just vibed with her way too hard. So I get it mm -hmm. completely. And I also veer from the structure. I will say when I was starting my business, I was so much more disciplined. But what happens is then you don't do the stuff and stuff still works. <laughs> and so you say to yourself, all right, well, I'm not going to prioritize it because I've got other fires to put out in other places. Yeah. And then when you start to really think about it, it is expansion. So I'm back in the thick of all of this <laughs> work now because I'm just going to expand my business. I wasn't yeah. sure if that's what I was going to do. But now, because I know that's what I'm going to do, this becomes more important again. So I think there's an ebb and flow of yep. how much time and attention you pay. Yeah, I think it's literally exactly what happened to us is we started off just freelancing. So we were going to take any work we could get. And so we we're like, oh, this is great. Like we're getting referrals. We're getting clients that are in every industry from Fortune 500 to solo founders. Um, so we're not going to worry about this. We're just going to say yes to whatever. And so now that we're focused four years later, I'm like, OK, we, we want to expand this. We're, we're good with that. Now it's going to be important for us to actually define that. So that's cool. You mentioned earlier, a, uh, I wrote down here, that you worked with a personal branding agency. I did. Um, what was that like? Well, I have only beautiful and amazing things <laughs> to say about them. Because <laughs> Jessica, who's their CEO, is one of my dearest friends, and her husband is too. And on top of that, I worked with their agency, but for the last year, I've been their team coach. <laughs> oh, and they were, nice. they were my first client. But it was actually a great experience. What I think Simply Be gets and understands that other agencies don't is that it is much more about the story that you're telling about yourself so that you can connect to other people. They're really value-driven. You talk to other personal branding agencies, and this is not a plug for them. It's why I didn't like the term personal branding. So yeah. I was a marketer, and I did no marketing for myself because it felt braggadocious and transactional mm -hmm. and gross, and I would rather do it to support a brand 
than myself. You know, I don't think of myself as a brand, at least at this point in my time. And I met Jessica on a panel for entrepreneurs where we were both on the panel. And the way she says it is we sort of fell in love on that panel in real time. People could watch it happening. And it's true. It just absolutely happened that way. And afterwards, we said, okay, we need to see each other again after this. And so we did. And we started meeting. And I learned a lot more about her business. And I became really interested in her approach, Mm -hmm. which was authentic storytelling and value creation. If you have knowledge to share that will fundamentally support other people and you can tell it in a true and authentic way that feels vulnerable, that resonates with them, that opens you up to them. What you're really doing with your personal brand is structuring deeper connections on a broader scale. And that is very interesting to me. That is something that I can get behind because I care about connection fundamentally so much. And I love people in the sort of platonic sense. Like I feel the deepest possible affection for individuals that I feel is humanly possible. And so if I can give more to them and I have something to give, and this is a platform that I can use to do it, why wouldn't I? And so Mm -hmm. they were really good at helping me figure out what it was I had to give that would feel original in my own voice and true to me. Because one of the other reasons I hated the personal brand stuff is because it seemed so boring to do because I was going to have to write about things like investing, which was just what I did every day. And what Jessica said was, Write about what it's like to be a lifelong learner and how you learn things. Write about performance and why you're so interested in driving high performance. Make content about diversity, equity, and inclusion. This is before I was doing any of this stuff, but she was saying, build your brand around the things that make you you. Be smart. Tie it to your business objectives so that what you're providing demonstrates that you have these capacities and these competencies and people want to work with you. But write about stuff you really care about or make videos or podcasts about stuff that you really care about and lead with your honest self and do it in service. And that's something she says all the time, which is be in service. And then absolutely keep metrics dashboards and have a true plan for it and be structured and organized so you can see what's working and not working. But I think that strategy piece and that visioning piece, that's where they're really strong. And that's what I would look for in any kind of personal branding, because it's ultimately about how you reach more people and build a reputation. And that, again, feels so much more important and valuable to me than you know having great headshots and a personal logo yeah what's the future of ethos look like for you what's the next year the next five years the next 10 years how far out are you thinking here I have a 10-year plan, a three-year plan, and a one-year plan. Wow. I knew there was going to be a structured answer. (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable. Uh, uh, Because every year I put together my annual plan. And so for the first year, the three components that I'm really working on, one we've talked about pretty extensively, but how do I take what I do and turn it into a system so that I'm not recreating the wheel every time, I'm not doing everything manually, and I can teach it and train it to other people. So that looks like, how do I put curriculum plans together on a tactical level, but also how do we actually determine what it is customers are buying from us or clients are buying from us? And this was my big sort of revelation. This is what I need to systematize. So wait for it. Okay. It's my big, it's my big moment. So I came to this realization that people don't buy the commodity. They buy the feeling behind it. Mm-hmm. People buy feelings. They don't buy anything else. Yep. It may be the feeling of convenience, 
or it may be the feeling of uh, elevation or empowerment, but it's a feeling. It's not the actual thing, right? Trust. And so I thought, okay, well, what is it that people are really buying from ethos? And I think what we do is we give people a sense of security that allows for them to fully feel their optimism. I think that's really what we do in companies. And so how do we systematize that? Because right now it's me listening and understanding and holding your hands figuratively through this process and and being there for you and thinking strategically about it and saying, we're going to completely blow up the entire structure of your organization and we're moving off of a career ladder framework, or we are going to fundamentally change the way that we do facilitation and learning development. We're going to introduce an assessments framework for the way people grow, but it's all coming from this particular feelings based place. So this year is all about actually making that into a system. It's also professionalizing the business, right? Because we're so small that being able to really grow and serve at the quality that I want to serve at, delivering excellence, it starts to break apart when you are going through this growth stage. I know because that's what I go and fix in other places. What can I put into my back end? What can I put into my infrastructure? What can I make automatic that is not automatic today to allow for us to professionalize, which is one of the reasons that account management as an actual function of the business is becoming such a top priority for me. And then the third piece is to really start expanding the team so that we can go into companies at a larger scale and support and help them. But also because just personally for me as a founder, let's look at where I'm at. I don't have a business partner and I don't have investors and I don't have a board, so I can do whatever I want. And what I really want to do is manage people because that's what I love to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the truth. That's why I end up always being a coach to managers because they don't yeah. know what to do. And I know what to do because I love it so much that I study it all the time. Right. So I want a team yep. for my own personal reasons, but also for my company reasons. And I will just emphasize Entrepreneurs forget that all the time. I make my mm-hmm. CEOs write ideal job descriptions for themselves. <laughs> yeah, it's you true. Just totally forget that you started this business because you wanted to do it. You become obsessed with all of yep. the other things that you have to keep running, and that can be really joy sapping. So I will make them write ideal job descriptions, and then we will spend time figuring out how they can actually have that job in their company. Yeah, yeah. We, we just interviewed uh, Jason Vandenboom. He's the, the founder of Active Campaign. Yeah. And he, he went through this like crazy transformation over the past 15 years where he was the first employee, the only developer, and then they grew to like 20 people, and then they raised a bunch of money, and now they're at like 400. And so it was interesting to hear that exact transition between all those those stages and how his job is just like totally different now. Right. And there is an element of you can't control it. You can shape it. Mm -hmm. You can do that work. And so for me, putting together the goals for this year, there was a significant need to get out of the business and above the business more. And so that is a big piece of hiring. So that's my one year. I'll go straight to 10 year because I think three year is interesting, but it's not (laughs) the big vision. So if I were to think about 10 year, I want to be the leading human capital consulting firm in the U.S. for small and medium businesses. That sounds really dry and not sexy, but there's a really specific reason, which is the way that human capital consulting is done today. I don't even like that term. That's why I call it culture Mm -hmm. consulting. It's not culture focused. It's all organizational health and it's design oriented and it's structure oriented. It's all about the process you put in place or the diagnoses of the problem. But it's not about how you build these sustainable, thriving communities 
where people are constantly learning and growing together. And so I want to be the leading firm in that segment. And the reason that I care about small and medium businesses, I do some work with Fortune 500s, but you can't get to the level of change as rapidly. And like I said earlier, I'm a fundamentally impatient person. I can get to wage equity in a company in three months if there are 80 employees and a startup who is like, oh my gosh, this is a problem. We didn't pay attention to it. Okay, thanks so much for telling us. Like, okay, let's fix it. As opposed to the 18 to 24 Mm -hmm. months that it takes in larger organizations. So I want to push the industry. This is my big goal, right? I want to push my industry into thinking about what is best for the people in these companies and introducing some actual love and care and kindness into how we do this work. And so that means actually productizing some of what we do. So that might be a licensing program for the methodology that we have. It might be a book. It might actually be a tech platform. But Mm -hmm. it is in 10 years from now, changing the way that the industry works and treats people, even though it's a people industry, being the leader so that others have to model after the way that we are working. So it's not a world where we have no competitors. It's a world where our competitors get better and make companies better because we exist. And finding as many avenues possible to make that happen. And I think productization is, is really key to that. And I think also just expanding as a consulting practice. I always think that it will be a people business right so not more than 25 because I really want to stay a family (laughs) I don't want to be a community I want to be a family so it's just my personal bias and interest and then there are of course Mm -hmm. revenue targets I've built in like I have ridiculous amounts of financial modeling done it's it's honestly not useful (laughs) like sometimes I think about it and I was like there's no way why do I have three budgets for three years right now why did I do that they're totally going to change. I'm changing my budget for this hmm. year because we exceeded targets. It's it's fun to play around with numbers every now and then. <laughs> Not for me. It's mostly stressful. <laughs> I have the most stressed out relationship with money in the world. That's funny. I, um, I was going to ask something when you were talking about how I, first off, I was um, impressed, but at the same time expecting that you had the one, three and 10 year plan. Um, it's a lot easier to come up with a plan once you're already in motion because you have past experiences to fall back on. What about for someone that's just coming out of college right now or just finishing their first you know, job or you know, they're only a year in to something? What, what would you ask yourself if you were in that like position? Uh, or would you, would you have asked yourself personally after your first, you know, right after you got out of college and kind of going through things so when I got out of college I was engaged and uh, my my now husband was going to get his PhD in synthetic biology engineering life orphan black style (laughs) and uh, I was thinking really practically so I didn't think about work as a place where I would enjoy what I did I thought about it as a place where I'd be good at what I did and where I would make as much money as possible because I wanted to support two people and that's how I made that call and very very quickly I learned that that was a mistake I think that what I would have taken myself through is actually an exercise I did do in college and then ignored. So I call it the career planning matrix. And it's really, really simple. I'll teach it to you right now. I love this tool because it is so simple. Mm -hmm. So it's five columns. The first column is what I like in work. The second column is what I don't like in work. These are experiences that you have had, whether it was babysitting or in an internship or in a group project for a class. 
but what I like and what I don't like. And then what I want and what I don't want are future oriented. So you haven't had them before, but you imagine that you would like them or want them based on the people that hopefully you've been talking to. Because that is one thing I always say to current college students and recent graduates, you need to be building your network not because you need a ton of LinkedIn connections, but so that you can form meaningful relationships with people who help you get to deeper understanding of the world around you and also yourself and so that you have something to give back to them because mentorship is a gift on both sides if you do it well. So hopefully you have some exposure to things that are interesting to you and you can fill out those columns. So those first four columns, you set a timer for five to seven minutes and you have to write continuously in each column and fill them up all the way down the page. Once the timer is up, you have a fifth column called non-negotiables and you have to systematically go through each column, every single one and cross out things that you are willing to give up or not have until there are only five left. And then you have to deeply define what each of those five things are. So if I put creativity, I would have to specify exactly what creativity means. Mm -hmm. Do I mean creativity in solving problems and being able to conceptually be creative? Do I mean I physically want to make objects? I have to actually spell it out and provide examples. And once that's done, I have to force rank them. So one through five, what is my top non-negotiable all the way to my fifth one? And the idea is, if you were forced to take five, four, three, two off, each one gets harder and harder to remove. Mm-hmm. And then what I would do is, like I said, for my CEOs, but I would do this for myself. I would I would always do this for anybody who's going through any kind of career thinking, even if it's to be an entrepreneur, create an ideal job description, but that is written around those non-negotiables, completely cemented in them. And then what I would do is I would send that out to as many people as I know and say, have you seen this job anywhere or would you make it for me? Mm-hmm. I love it. That's or do simple. I make it for myself? Do you yeah. want to be my partner or supporter or investor or first customer? This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. You have a process for everything. It's incredible. <laughs> I'm not process oriented. I think you I are though. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a little bit of process in there. Yeah. You know, um, I really like ideas. I really, really like ideas and I really like research, but they're very overwhelming if they're not organized. Yeah. So I think I'm good at collecting information and organizing information. Yeah. yeah true. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that you read twice, two books a week. Is there, oh, is there any I had a question about this too? <laughs> I beat him to it. Did you want to ask it instead, Thomas? No, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> you mentioned you read two books a week. Are there any books recently that you're just loving? Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's one right next to me. Uh, the Advantage by Patrick Lencioni. It's the second time that I've read it. I think it is probably one of the most important business books that exists for developing really okay. good team dynamics and creating and communicating clarity on teams. It's really a very short read and the exercises in it are really practical. Patrick Lencioni also wrote The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, really well known in this space. That is um, one of my favorite books that I've read recently. The other one is also next to me. The reason is that I keep a research journal. So after I read a book, I record all of my notes um, in my research journals. And I have like four of them and they're all indexed. And then I go through and I use them to develop content and answer questions and put models together when I build processes. uh, Because apparently that is something I do a lot. The other one (laughs) that I'm holding up right now is The Best We Could Do, which is an illustrated memoir of... um, uh, Thai Bui's family came over as Vietnamese refugees from the uh, Vietnam War 
And it's basically a very complicated look at how you understand yourself through the lens of your family. I think it's beautifully rendered and really complicated. And I think it really speaks to a lot of the immigrant experience. I mean, my family is made up of refugees. But for this book in particular, it's this very weird cultural phenomenon that I don't think people totally understand unless they're immigrants, which is you are closer to your family than uh, the traditional American family, like in physical proximity, like you are physically closer to your family and you see them all the time. But there's so much that doesn't get talked about and there's so much you don't know about their past and yet there is this element of inherited trauma so that one is really excellent the book that I recommend to every single entrepreneur and I actually have sent out 27 copies of like seriously I should be getting some royalties or something is uh the culture code by Daniel Coyle I think it's the best book ever written on culture and it's a fast and enjoyable read uh for other business books I read all of Ray Dalio's principles in a day because it was exactly what I needed to solve my problems. It is 600 pages and really dry. But if you have a problem with establishing principles, it is a godsend. Uh, I also really love Radical Candor uh, for, again, getting to a place of profound change through communication. And then I could give you poetry and plays and art books because I do read one nonfiction book and one fiction or other category a week but yeah I I I looked through my list of 105 books last year that I read and I'll say my two favorites were The Culture Code and then Educated which was the memoir that I absolutely loved that shook me to my core that I recommend to everyone all the time so sorry for another long-winded answer awesome I was gonna say that you must be and an incredible speed reader to to get through books that fast. I'm kind of like the slower reader. Sometimes I'd like to think I'm a fast reader, but very slow. <laughs> I don't think I'm a fast reader. I think there's no pressure on me when I'm reading. Like I think for me, reading is what other people do with other things, like running or um, actually I do mm-hmm. make candles, but candle making. Like I used to <laughs> candle make all the time to just get in my zone. Cooking is a great example. For a lot of people, what I do with reading is like cooking. And then when they're, but I hate cooking. So it takes me forever and it's stressful and I get distracted yeah. and I pause and I want to like totally understand what's happening in the moment when I'm cooking. I think that's how other people are about reading. And so it comes off and maybe I am a fast reader. I will say the only thing I have 10,000 hours of practice in is reading. Uh, <laughs> that's it. So it's like the only <laughs> skill that I really, I think, have some mastery in. Uh, but I, I do think there's an element. People always tell me they're bad readers. They're slow readers. They're bad readers. I'm not good at reading. For me, it's just how I feel better. Mm-hmm. Nice. nice. <laughs> if anyone listening wants to learn more about you or Ethos, where would they go? EthosTalent.com is our website. And then EthosTalent at EthosTalent on Twitter. My name is awesome because nobody else has it. Alita Miranda Wolf. I am the only person for like 26 pages of Google results. So if you literally just Google Alita Miranda Wolf, I'm the only one. Love I'm it. the only one on LinkedIn too, where I post a lot of content. And then I'm at Alita MW on Twitter. Awesome. Yeah, well, I'll be sure to link all those in the show notes. And um, I'm jealous that you're the only <laughs> one with that name because I'm Sean Crow 5 because there's a Irish politician with my name. (laughs) 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 Yeah, well, you know what? But I think probably the advantage for you is that you aren't called literally every name except your own name every day. I get called Amanda, Alexandra, the word laid, Rita, 
uh, Riley. I mean, just any name that you can possibly think of that is not my name is what I am called. Ah, that's yeah. funny. <laughs> the, the constant struggle. <laughs> <laughs> I have that with my last name too. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the show. This was, we learned a ton. This was super useful for us. So it'll definitely be useful for other people. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated getting to talk with you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great weekend.